Support for the Couples Council comes from Mercier Wellness and Consulting. Their purpose is to equip you with the right skills for a happy and healthy relationship. Schedule your consultations now. For more information, visit mercierwellness.com. Mercier Wellness and Consulting. Small steps, big changes. This podcast is not a substitute for therapy. Please consult a licensed professional for your mental health needs. Now Now on on with with the the show. show. Hello and welcome to the Couples Council. I'm your host, Dr. Jameson Mercier, licensed clinical social worker and doctor of marriage and family therapy. Hello again. I hope you guys are doing well. I know I am, uh, despite some of this uh, shelter-in-place order. We're making the best of it, Herdine and I, and I hope uh, the same goes for you and your loved one, loved ones, in case you got some babies running around. Again, that's the case for Herdine and I. But uh, we keep telling ourselves it won't last forever, and so we're doing all right. On today's episode, okay, just jumping right in. On today's episode, you will be hearing a conversation I had with a with a colleague. Yes, Dr. Shannon Crawford. Um, I want to warn you now that this conversation is a bit of a technical conversation. However, I felt um, compelled to have this conversation um, and and share it with you guys because as we've shared before in previous episodes, we're talking about where mental health and marriage intersect, but also it's important to understand, um, it's important to understand where some of the interventions come from, right? It's important, it's important to talk to some of the people who are doing some of the research and some of the data, uh, such as Dr. Crawford. So having said that, it's a bit of a technical conversation, but it's a conversation that is well worth listening to, all right? So this may be one that you need to sit down to listen to. I know we all enjoy multitasking, um, but I want to encourage you, if at all possible, to settle in and uh, pay attention. Now, who is this Shannon Crawford? Well, she's a licensed psychologist, conference speaker, and adjunct professor. She's based out in California, and uh, she is one of the brains behind, and I say one one of the brains because a lot of her research was done with other colleagues, But uh, one of her areas of expertise is what she's dubbed restoring self-cohesion. All right. That you want to listen to. But that specifically is what I wanted to share with you guys. Dr. Crawford's mission is to educate individuals, couples and families, as well as organizations on how to identify and remove self-sabotaging blocks that hinder them from achieving their ideal life. That's all I'm going to tell you for now. You have to go look her up. Check out her website. Look her up on Instagram. And for now, you just have to listen to this interview with Dr. Shannon Crawford. Enjoy. Dr. Shannon Crawford, hello and welcome to the Couples Council. Hi, thank you for having me. No, indeed, it is my pleasure. Um, Thank you for carving out the time, um, prioritizing the episode. 
Um, for you guys who may not know Dr. Crawford, she was diligent and intentional about making sure that she prepared herself, which is interesting to me because when you read her bio or look her up on her page, um, and if you ever check out her Instagram profile, this seems like just a duck to water, but she felt she had to prepare even more. And so thank you again, Dr. Crawford. Absolutely. Tell us, so now tell us a little bit about where you're based, um, uh, your background. I know you are a psychologist. Correct. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about that. All right. Um, I'm originally a California girl and went to LA to be an actress and had a lot of fun, great jobs, great opportunities. And behind my back, my parents were praying that God would dry up that desire because they didn't trust a 17 year old to make good life choices, which I would have made really bad life choices. Um, So I got jobs and I remember one day all of a sudden the desire to act just kind of dried up and I didn't know why. And so I started searching out, well, what else do I want to do with my life? Um, And by the way, my parents hadn't told me that they were praying that. That was something that's just happened. Um, So I went to the college counseling center and the lady said, well, let's explore. Let's ask about your background. So she asked me about my childhood and I said, I don't remember it. And she rolled her eyes and said, why don't you come back when you're not being resistant? And so as a communications major, I was like, psychology is the stupidest profession. Who would ever be a psychologist? Wow. I made an internal vow judgment against psychology at that time. And then um, went to somebody else and they said, well, maybe there's a reason you don't remember. And so starting to explore repressed memories and unconscious content and trauma memories that had plagued me my whole life at the symptom level, but I had never known that there was a root to it. And so once the route became available, now I could start that journey toward healing. And so I had good mentors that said, you know, you can't do anything with a bachelor's. You might as well get your doctorate. And so I was like, okay. And there went all of my 20s. So I have stayed that path of psychology and then did a post-fellowship in psychoanalysis and Christian integration theology. Um, So that was really, really productive. I, again with ignorance, didn't understand the value that it actually has brought to my personal life as well as my clinical work. And it has enriched it and deepened it so much more. And so I love, love, love being a clinical psychologist. I have a practice in Texas. And then I work adjunct at the King's University in Southlake and then speak and write whenever doors doors and opportunities open. Nice. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. Parents have a way of uh, encouraging you to follow your own path, but secretly <laughs> yes. they have this plan with God or whomever. <laughs> Behind their back, right? <laughs> right, right. And so I know many parents, mine included, uh-huh. who, uh, who've done a bit of that. So you're yeah. not alone in that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were speaking briefly uh, before hitting record and you talked about a lot of the research um, that you've done. Um, And before we get and talk about some of the research and specifically the work with couples, um, the reason that we're having professionals specifically um, like you, and when I say like you, uh, who actually are in the trenches and doing the research this season on the podcast, is because we want to focus on that intersection where marriage and mental health meet, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, We can talk about couples and relationships, 
um, anecdotally, mm-hmm. you know, uh, we can talk about tips and advice, but uh, there are times when we do need to look at what's proven and, you know, mm-hmm. what's evidence-based is a language, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you've um, worked on some and developed one, I think. You've contributed a lot in terms of research and work with couples. Now, specifically, um, we're talking restoring self-cohesion. Yeah, so when I came across that, that really piqued my interest. And and so I won't won't babble too much. I'll just let you take over and just tell us about that. Sure. Um, So the one that's more research-based is hope-focused couples counseling. So that's the one I was a part of the research team. phenomenal experience taking couples through uh, the research program and couples therapy. So that one's specifically for couples. And then with that experience, and I did a lot in marriage in general in my dissertation and um, original program development. So that built and then gathering all the psychodynamic and psychoanalytic perspective and kind of marrying those together. It's been really fruitful to work with couples, understanding both of their unconscious and unresolved projections, reenactments, ways that we get hooked into dynamics and how we have two layers of relationship. We have the conscious layer in which we think we're talking about finances or picking up socks or not feeling heard or understood, but there's an actual unconscious part of self that will never feel satisfied by a spouse today if there's an unmet need or a trauma or something that's unresolved in the past. And so then we're stratified between conscious me and unconscious me. And so that's where people get stuck, where they have the conversation over and over. And um, it when it becomes unproductive, then you know that there's something regressed that needs to be brought into the light and resolved. So that's where restoring self-cohesion has been really productive in helping couples and individuals and families. Um, Everybody has a soul. And so looking back layer upon layer where we get stuck and a part of the soul is still kind of holding a dynamic. And if there's like a metaphor of me and that person that didn't meet a need or abuse or trauma or um, a neglect, an absent person that should have been there but wasn't and how Mm -hmm. any part of me can stay stuck there which we call regression and there's no movement past that and so then I'll perceive the person today in my life through that filter and through that lens and it creates enactments so that's where restoring self-cohesion kind of marries the best marriage work together with the best psychoanalysis work of how each individual soul is um, layer upon layer integrating into a marriage and where some of the layers aren't healthy and causes dysfunction at unconscious levels. Right. And so, okay, so that's a lot. Let's unpack that a little bit. Sure. Work, a, a couple that you've decided needs to be treated with this modality, taken through this um, the restoring self cohesion approach. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you start? You know, what well, what might that look like? And as 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 uh, in addition to that question, are there any couples for whom this may not be appropriate, or they may be so far beyond that you would have to try something else? Mm-hmm. Those are great questions. So probably I'll answer from who may not be a good fit. If there's any psychopathology where the person is manipulative, strong addiction issues, they need to be in their own actual individual work. 
which is mm. separate from the, I work with couples separately together, separately together. Right. We're peeling back the onion of where we have our own dysfunction that's getting projected and reenacted in the relationship. So we, so we separate and we each deal with our issues. So that takes quite a bit of frustration tolerance and patience, um, self-awareness, uh, not actively engaged in anything that's super dangerous or pathological or um, abusive, anything like that would not be a good fit for this. But a couple who both are pretty emotionally resilient and hardy can separate together, separate together. And so what I'll do is I may meet with them together the first time, just kind of get an assessment mm -hmm. or meet with them separately, just depending on kind of the feel I get from the initial phone call when I vet couples, because I don't think every therapist should see every couple or client that we need to really make sure we're goodness of fit, that I'm the right fit for them. So then separating mm -hmm. and asking where they're getting stuck. So like for one couple where um, as an example, let's say he has anger and he hates his anger. He hates his temper and he's trying to control it. But the more he does, the more it spurts back out. Mm -hmm. And let's say she has anxiety and it's just plaguing her and she's not able to move forward. Their dynamics are triggering each other. So to continue talking about skills in a couple session could actually do more damage because I'm trying to equip them with something that emotionally their legs, let's say, can't. They're not sturdy enough internally, psychologically to hold. So then they go home and the other person gets triggered. One gets anxious, one gets angry. And now they're going to do the very thing that they promised in session they're not going to do. And so then the other spouse goes, see, I knew it. You knew what to do and you did it anyway. Now I have evidence that you don't love me. And then they stop mm -hmm. going to the counter because it didn't work. Instead, right. you change the expectation that we're separately working on each of our individual issues that precede you ever being a couple, but right now you're kind of tap dancing on each other's issues. If we separate that and create an opportunity where really you're creating an emotional holding, where your part is to be present and available to recognize there's layers peeled back that we're not gonna be as tough and um, able to to engage at the same level that we're going to need to be a lot more tender with each mm -hmm. other. knowing we're both kind of in that more vulnerable state. Okay. And so let me ask you this now, um, when working with couples, um, there's a couple of different schools of thought that the wife should see her own couple, uh, her own therapist, and he should see his own. And then when they're ready to work together, then they should see a third one for the both of them. Mm -hmm. This what you're telling me now is you seeing both of them, uh, well, him, her, and them. Mm -hmm. So what's, how do you see that? Um, what's the outcome of that? Any difficulties in doing it that way? Managing all the different um, sessions and all the things that come up compared mm -hmm. to just referring them out to their own individual therapists. Absolutely. The nice thing is there's continuity. So everyone is on the same page and the same objectives. Mm -hmm. And the difference when it's a couple's, when I separate a couple to do their individual issues, it's always with the goal of relationship in mind. It's not the deep individual work if it was just an individual session. So they may okay. still need an individual therapist and I do that separately, but I'm not going to be their individual therapist and their couple's therapist. 
that the pulling apart is to recognize, okay, you think you're having this fight about this and you can't resolve conflict here. Where is that coming from? And if they're able to, if they're pretty tender toward each other already, I'll actually keep them in the session together because mm-hmm. then it elicits more empathy toward the spouse. If I take them back to those memories and then I stand in the gap and that's a big part of restoring self-cohesion where if we understand a part of self never had repair in something, then I stand in the gap and say, I am so sorry on behalf of X person. You have the right to be angry, to be sad, to be hurt by what's happened to you. That was an injustice or whatever is relevant to the wound. And as I stand in the gap and repair for them, then there's a sense of closure. And then we break the projection that your spouse is the one that's eliciting those feelings. Because if I get triggered and I have you in front of me, I'm going to naturally think you're the one making me feel this instead of recognizing, oh, being around you in an attachment relationship is pulling my existing attachment wounds. Wow. So helping them connect in that language, in that space where they can empathize with each other versus um, really just trying to keep it about facts and knowledge where one's trying to be right versus the other one, mm-hmm. where if it's, a, if it's a healthy couple, I'll try to keep them together where they can empathize in the same space. But if not, and they're still kind of having a hard time empathizing, then I'll separate them and then move them back together, separate, move back together. Yeah, no, that, that's that's. Uh, that's... Great. I know there are times when, even with work, when working with just one spouse, uh, some clinicians, um, and even myself at times, I'll have the other spouse just sit in and hear the conversation, yeah. because so, otherwise they will never hear that. Yeah. You know, and so now, the husband, while talking to the therapist, for example, mm-hmm. um, the spouse is there. Whereas if they were home trying to have that same conversation, like mm-hmm. you just said, it'd be major fights. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because we're getting triggered. Right, and right. So knowing how to soothe one another. Yeah. And, and I like how you emphasize, you know, you, while you may separate them, you're still the couple's counselor. You're the marriage counselor. You're not doing the individual stuff. Because that's kind of tricky. That can creep up and come up. And mm-hmm. knowing how to uh, keep that out Mm-hmm. Or not let it uh, take over. Yeah, I imagine would would require some. You know, you got to be aware. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And there's definitely the time where I may be working with a couple together separate, and then a, a very large individual issue may come up, and I'll refer that person while we work on the marriage. So I may mm-hmm. not do their deep individual therapy, although we will do layers of individual as long as it's salient to their couple relationship. Wow. Yeah. You know, when we say the issues that you have or had, yeah, they show up in your marriage. Mm-hmm. You yes. know, the, the, the for better or for worse phrase, you know, the, mm-hmm. the marriage is fertile ground for that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Wow. So that's restoring self-cohesion. How long um, has, has that existed? So tell me, uh, well, yeah, let's just go with that. You've been practicing that how long now with the restoring self-cohesion? Um, probably about five years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's been kind of a hybrid, definitely under the auspice of psychodynamic and pulling from different models. Mm-hmm. 
but adding the function that we're strategically going into where the wound is and helping the regressed part of self gain repair. While traditional psychoanalysis, it's found through the therapeutic relationship and projections right. and uh, transference and countertransference. But I found where I use imagination and have the person go back and revisit the memory beginning to end. And now they, they visualize the person who should have repaired at that time, finally giving the repair that they needed. And so that's where my voice steps in and I say, on behalf of X person, I would like to rep provide repair in this way where regressed parts of self or denied parts of self, including anger, um, hatred, pain, all of these things that might be too vulnerable to admit, finally are brought into relationship. And now we can have that person visualize bringing those as integrated parts of self. And that's not, you know multiple personality, anything like that. Um, it would be more like the symphony analogy that if you have the wind instruments and they've been kind of separated, so let's say it's a male who's not comfortable with his vulnerability or his sadness or his shame, and that's kind of like in a side room where there's symptoms coming from it and it's kind of confusing why is why am I acting like this? Where is this coming from? But the more that we bring that into the light and they integrate it as a valid part of self, now the whole symphony is properly functioning or for somebody who maybe disavows their anger. And now they can validate and bring their anger into a cohesive, recognized, healthy part of self. That instead of it coming out like the Hulk or in self-hatred, mm -hmm. going out or going against, now it's healthy to recognize, oh, babe, I need to tell you that that hurt my feelings and I'm upset about it. Can we talk around that you know, topic? So they're using proactive engagement of anger instead of this reactive, regressed version of anger. Uh -huh. As I hear you talk about the self, it takes me back to um, one of my really, uh, an approach I really like, and that's natural systems. Mm -hmm. And where we, we talk a lot about the sense of self and um, even within a marriage where one sense of self can disappear or cease to exist altogether. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about, in, about that. Um, and so restoring is one sense of self in a marriage ever so damaged or so uh, non-existent that it, it, it's impossible or, you know, better to try something else. Mm -hmm. Have you encountered that in, in your work? I think... My posture as a therapist is always to come with humility and curiosity to, mm. to be innovative with every couple and not come with a stock approach. That's why restoring self-cohesion has been kind of, um, it's not very advertised because I want to make sure that it's robust, it's healthy, it's flexible before I put too much effort into putting it out in the world because there is a, when you're dealing with those layers of the soul where people are so fractured, broken, hurt, sad, disappointed, um, that there has to be such a humility and tenderness. So I think it's absolutely possible that maybe it wouldn't be the right fit or maybe they're not the right time to work with a certain couple or individual if any parts of self in their system of self is um, too fractured, too wounded, and maybe the couple may not be the focus right now and more the individual and their trauma work or whatever aspect they might be doing. Um, but being able to, within like a system of self, that there's mm -hmm. these parts 
and we need each part to be whole and healthy and kind of brought up doing its intended role versus holding as a defense mechanism. Okay. So like the metaphor, people talk about defenses or walls, but I don't believe that's a literal wall. I think that's a literal part of self. There's a part of the soul that instead of being sexy or creative or playful or imaginative or advancing into the world is more regressed, defensive, postured to hide and reject in order to protect myself. So we have parts of self that are not playing their original role. Mm. And for the more that we free up that this part is no longer having to defend shame in you know one case. And so now I've seen people become more creative and more adventurous, more playful and spontaneous than before when they were a little bit more rigid and stuck and not able to fluidly go among the sides of their self. Wow. Fascinating work. Mm-hmm. That's really fun. Now, I, I've learned over the years that there are people who, rather than seeking a therapist to address these individual issues, mm-hmm. um, they actually seek a marriage as the solution. Yes. Now you're smiling and and, <laughs> um, and as as many times as you can tell someone that a marriage is not a fix, mm-hmm. you know, it's a magnifier. Um, yes. You know, people think they're unique in that regard. Mm-hmm. So, but what about that situation? Because um, I can imagine how that might complicate it um, for someone who saw their new spouse as the answer to whatever um they were dealing with is it the same approach or do you have to adjust it or tweak working with that couple mm-hmm. um i think i was smiling because it's just so pervasive i don't know that i've met a couple that hasn't come in with that mindset and so the psychoeducation piece of letting people know that if there's a regressed part of you that is stuck in a metaphorical room kind of holding all your pain for you so that you could grow up and be age appropriate and do whatever you needed to do to achieve milestones this part is still stuck that's unresolved it's kind of like mm-hmm. if you have thin green on your leg just because you put pants on it and you don't see it and you're not thinking about it doesn't mean it's not growing and festering wow. and then Expect the person today to magically take all that away um, when that white noise of pain is actually supposed to be there. It would be like taking the nerve endings off of your hand. Your nerve endings are there to make sure you don't put your hand on a hot stove and burn your hand off. Correct. Our psychological defenses, pain, anger, sadness, frustration, powerlessness, all of those are supposed to be there. And when we numb that by trying to self-medicate through a marriage, a relationship, a career, success, finances, parenting, anything we're trying to self-medicate, the pants may be covering the gangrene, but it's still down there. And the person today can never meet that need in the way that it was originally needed to have been met back there. Psychoeducation part comes first for couples who have unrealistic expectations and horribly disappointed that I married you because you're supposed to treat me like this and you're supposed to always listen, always be there for me. You're supposed to hold me when I'm sad. But if, if you think about it and you really listen, what they're describing is a perfect parent-child relationship, mm, not a wow. spouse, spouse relationship. Right. Right, right, right. Yep. And you know what's the, the way it shows up in some of the couples I've worked with is um, a, a wife or husband, for that matter, may look to their spouse to be their best friend mm-hmm. or this be all end all mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and some people can hear, well, I'm not your best friend, while other people can't hear that because that was the expectation. Right. Mm-hmm. Wow. And they feel duped. Yeah, and then you fall into, if I had known what I know now. I would never would have married you. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Huh. Okay. No, this is very good. Um, and so you're keeping this secret for, for, for how much longer? It's not a secret. I'm just, well, not anymore, but I, there's so many couples. I, I, I'm just iman- imagining who would benefit greatly from this approach. Yes. Um, I think coming from a background where I do believe there's so many modalities that are helpful and so many of them are researched and this one is not researched yet. So this is, you know, case studies at this point. And so the next phase is to start doing research and writing and publishing, but I really want to make sure that it's whole, it's healthy, it's robust before um, moving into any of those stages. So I'm trying to just do the groundwork due diligence understood Understood. um uh, so you also do some premarital counseling Mm -hmm. um is there any of this in the premarital counseling yes okay i'd imagine tell tell us a little bit about how that goes yes oh gosh so it depends on the couple so some couples come in and they're so wildly in love and they can't imagine anything ever going awry and Mm. of course I toggle between I'm the most positive person you ever met. Like I'm very hopeful. I believe all things can be worked on, all that stuff. But then I'm also protective, you know, like let's do the preventative work now. Mm -hmm. So odds are good if you don't deal with this, this issue with your mom and your dad and your stepfather and your grandfather or whatever it might be, if that's not resolved, there's a part of you that is stuck in a place of familiarity that then will create self-fulfilling prophecies. And before you know it, you're hooking that person into responding the way that's familiar. And then you're going to go, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. You're just like X. How in the world did I marry my father? How in the world did I blah, blah, blah. And we stay in this victim posture instead of going, hey, let's do the preventative work in premarital. Or even there's a movement toward pre-engagement counseling where yes. people start looking at what are my blind spots? What are my landmines? Where in my soul am I a little bit more vulnerable? And if I don't deal with that, it's going to get displaced and it's going to start manifesting in weird, funky ways in my marriage. And then most people don't come to therapy until they're already at the brink of divorce. They've already contacted the attorney. And this is the last resort for their morals to say, well, at least we tried. At least we tried. And that's not productive. So that's why the movement, the shift to try to be preventative, let's look at some of these landmine areas ahead of time. Let's do as much work as we can. And then in marriage, when those come up, definitely circle back. And then we know we already have the groundwork to say, this is not just your spouse. You didn't marry the wrong person. This is your stuff and their stuff commingling. Yeah. And there's a whole lot of unpacking that needs to be done. Uh, on average, what I think last I checked, it was about 10 years that couples will wait mm-hmm. to seek a therapist. I'm not sure what the numbers are now, but mm-hmm. 10 years is a whole lot of living together and raising a family. And Yeah. And the imprint to the next generation of kids who are growing up in that environment of unnamed tension and discontent and unsettledness that there's no bruise to that, and yet it will impact their soul. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And in particular in the family, again, going back to the whole natural systems thing, mm-hmm. children are often where all that anxiety and tension is bound. Yes. Triangled into the child. Absolutely. Ab- absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now what was a, a marital issue now is, now it's a marital, it's familial. And now this teenager or whomever this kid is now has to also deal with these feelings that they can't put a name on, a word on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Wow. Um, okay, okay. So in the research phase, so this is not brief. It doesn't sound brief by any stretch of the imagination, this approach. It depends. I mean, there's times where I'm able in one session to take somebody back to a memory and help them achieve catharsis and repair so that the metaphor, instead of it being a wound that's just scabbed over that keeps getting pulled, now the wound with um, empathy and understanding and compassion, now there's a scar. So that can be pretty quick. If there's small, low-key, not huge events, you know, small trauma, those can be resolved really quickly. And if they're not overly projecting and enacting as a couple, then there's more hope and resilience in them that they can kind of focus on their own woundedness and then offering that empathy and repair as a couple, that could be very strategic and straightforward. Mm. But for other people who it's more embedded into personality structure and they're more convinced that their narrative is 100% instead of a little more humility to say, hey, there may be part of me that is projecting and maybe today is real and the past is real and they're commingling my perception of reality and my thalamus is getting flooded. Mm-hmm. Uh, if somebody's not able to do that. It would be a lot longer because you're, you're really having to reparent along the way. And whether it's the guidance or the empathy or the kindness or confrontation or whatever you're having to use to help people go to those levels of vulnerability inside of them and to offer that vulnerability to their spouse or partner. Yeah. Yeah, the the. So you know, so going back to what you said, it's not a one size fits all, and it does require some research and be peer reviewed, I suppose. Mm-hmm. When people are looking for a situation, they want to know that this is the fix, and to say to someone, "Well, this may take a few months or mm-hmm. several months." Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, you want to be genuine in that. Yes. Absolutely. Wow. Okay. Um, man, there, there, there's a lot more I can ask, but uh, with the hope focused couples counseling, mm-hmm. let me ask, let's see how I could phrase this. Um, it sounds to me that the approach is coming in with the creating that expectation that we can work through this is that intentional is that by design instilling hope is a large portion of that modality and there are stages so each session you're kind of going through different exercises that enrich the relationship it's not psychodynamic at all so that's very different than restoring self-cohesion okay yeah let's talk about that a, a little bit um, I mean, I, I think I interrupted you, but you. No. Okay. I was asking, what part did you want to talk about? Well, with, let's start from the beginning. 
okay. I'll try not to. I'll, I'll be mindful of the time, but I do hear the. Uh, so the restoring self cohesion is very uh, deliberate and and intentional, methodical. And the name against hope focused couples counsel suggests, you know, as you were saying, mm-hmm. um, trying to be much more positive and and looking to much more um, a positive outcome. Uh, Restoring hope, right. helping the couple gain vision. Um, they do their contract, I think. Forgive me, it's been a couple years. No, it's okay. It's okay. Uh, so that's the hope focus. There's each session, there's direct exercises that you work through and you take the couple through those. And it's very practical and it's really accessible for all couples and intellect and background and education level. So it's really, really valuable and very different from that. Restoring self-cohesion is a lot more on the dynamic side of where are parts of me getting stuck and Mm -hmm. not being able to engage authentically on every level of intimacy with my partner. Okay. So would the couples have to um, successfully, I guess, move through each stage to move on to the next? How does that work? For hope focused? Yes. Um, I don't know. That's a good question. I was on the research team and then we saw several couples. Well, we saw a lot of couples. Um, so you just kind of take them through the stages. It's a, it's a lot more leaning maybe toward kind of a cognitive behavioral. It's a lot more kind of up here level. Okay. And then with restoring self-cohesion, it's not as steps driven. It's more kind of that fluidity of finding where is the trigger and then mm-hmm. finding where in my past is something reawakening that needs to be resolved appropriately. So there's medicine into the gangrene and right. that cut off instead of continuing to just put skills on top of it. Okay. And I think they're both valuable and they both have their place. I agree. I agree 100%. I know we've seen couples um, where the first thing we have to do is to get them on the same page. And -hmm. there are a number of ways to do that. You know, one of the things we've, we do when we work with couples is ask them to um, find a team name. I like that. And the, the funny thing about that, you know, as simple of an exercise as that is, that exercise, the experience of that exercise, Mm -hmm. where you're trying to come up with a team and there's all kind of meaning behind the names. Absolutely. And so that, that there goes that hope and there goes that togetherness. Mm -hmm. Um, Some couples have never thought of themselves as a team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For some reason they, they, they'll say we're a couple, but a team we're not. Mm -hmm. And initially that kind of intrigued me how that, that can be, but you, you know, you realize, yeah, we're a couple, but not a team. And and Mm -hmm. so reworking that for a lot of couples is valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Reframing that power struggle from their past individual self now into a we sense of self. Right. 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 Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Dr. Shannon Crawford. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I do. I honestly don't know if that's possible because um, I kind of was totally geeking out about the research and the literature I'm guilty as charged um, because I, I just I love that stuff I love that stuff I, I get 
Um, I get a kick out of the thinking and the rationale behind the theories and techniques that get used when working with couples, right? It's like the engineer who uh, builds the car. Some people enjoy driving the cars. I like getting into the minds of those who designed the cars. What were they thinking? What drove them to do this as opposed to that? The other thing is there are lots of people working with couples and trying a lot of different things. Um, And a lot of times there's a reason for it. And sometimes it's a matter of just throwing anything at the wall and seeing if anything sticks, if anything works. So I'm not a big proponent of that, right? Uh, Because when we're working with couples, you kind of have to know what you're doing. All right. You want to know what you're doing because you got people's lives in your hands. Okay. You want to make sure you know what you're doing. And so this is, I guess you can say this was me giving you guys an inside look, um, some behind the scenes look. Okay. I'm sure, well, I'm hoping it was of value to you. I know it was to me. Uh, If you made it this far, again, I thank you. You deserve a round of applause because like I said in the onset, it was a bit of a technical conversation. But I thank you. I appreciate you for joining me for this episode. If this is your first time, if this is the first podcast that you are hearing, go back and, and, and be introduced slowly. Listen to some of the other things, the other conversations that we've been having check out our social media dr jameson mercier go to the website mercierwellness.com the couples council podcast.com will also get you there let me know what you thought of this episode let me know what we could have changed um, what you disagreed with leave it in the comments leave a review we listen to it all we appreciate all of it thank you guys for spreading the word and getting the listenership up um Again, I say it every week, but there's no way for me to express just how much of that I appreciate. Thank you. Thank you again for joining me on this episode. And as always, I look forward to having you join me for yet another episode of The Couples Council. Bye now. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to our mom and dad. If you like them as much as we do, then click subscribe and leave a comment. But now they have to go because it's family time. So go practice what you heard. And we'll catch you on the next episode.